Uh, I don't know about you, but in our house, uh, and probably every house across the globe that involves young children and sometimes teenagers and probably all adults as well, there's this refrain that goes on over and over, and it is, they did it to me first, right? They did it to me first. My kids, when they argue, no matter what happens, no matter whose fault it is, each of them says, it's their fault. They did it to me first. I say that as an adult. I'm being a jerk to you because you're being a jerk to me, right? I'm honking at you in my car angrily because you cut me off, right? Our politics are filled with this kind of mentality of like a tit for tat, right? You did this to me, therefore you did it. I'm going to do it to you. Uh, you did this last election, so we're going to do it this election. <laughs> you hear about violence in the world, right? Whether it be gang violence and wars and uh, all sorts of other shootings that may happen. And what we find is the most of the time it's a retaliation for something that happened in the past. Someone did something to somebody a year ago or six months ago or a week ago, and we're getting them back. You guys realize this, right? Almost every war that's ever happened in the history, both sides feel justified in their actions because of what had happened to them before. Somebody had done them wrong. Someone had hurt them. Someone had done something to cause them to respond in retaliation. This is why people say the wars and rumors of wars and violence just go round and round and round and round. You may feel completely justified in your actions, and yet maybe a few years ago, maybe 50 years ago, maybe hundreds of years ago, the people that you're a part of did something to cause anger and frustration to the people that are now causing you harm. And yet at the same time, the Bible speaks of God as being a God of peace. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed was in the garden, and Judas, his good friend, had went and brought the uh, authorities to arrest Jesus. And Peter's there, and the other disciples are there, and they had just fallen asleep, and Jesus is mad about that, but they're ready, right? They're ready to fight. They're ready to fight for Jesus. If there's ever been a justification for violence, wouldn't that not be to defend the Savior of the world? Would it not be to defend Jesus who had done absolutely nothing wrong? And so it says in that passage, if you could put that passage up from Matthew that I have, Matthew 26, it says this. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you do, what you, go ahead and do what you, I don't see there, that's the kidney stone I'm just going to say. He came to do, have, have come, I just have a period there, have come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. Wow, this is a mess. 51, but one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly. Those who live by the sword die by the sword is Jesus' response. 
Jesus died and was buried, and with him buried the old world devoted to sin and death. On the third day, Jesus was raised, and a new world, it says, was born. A new covenant came into existence. A new reality about the kingdom of God being at hand and what that meant for us. So this is a, a sermon, you know, the reason that I wanted to, to do this sermon was because I wanted to talk about the, the war in Ukraine. I felt like, well, why not talk about things that are happening in our world right now? And it would have centered on uh, Russia and how terrible they are. <laughs> this would be an easy sermon to preach. It would be very exciting for me as a pastor to preach against a war and a person that we all agree is in the wrong, probably, I, I don't want to assume, probably all of us agree is in the wrong, and performing incredibly evil acts. And this war is truly sickening. But I'm not sure that it would be super helpful for me to preach a sermon about peace that simply pushed back against someone halfway around the world as we learn to cling to God in Chicago. Not very helpful simply to point out the sin of others' lives and not look internally at our own. So, I'm prepared to possibly offend a few people today. <laughs> uh, I hope you can hear me out. And it's okay. I think I'm right. But if you disagree with me, that's okay. I pray that you at least listen to what the scriptures say. And allow them to challenge your perspectives as my perspective has been challenged this week. So I'm going to say three parts. The first is this. The first half, or the first third, is to show how we, particularly in the United States, are dependent upon the sword. The second half is to show God's vision for the world of peace. And the third point is, that, is why we need to bring peace in the world, be peacemakers. First, the U.S. dependence upon violence and the sword. According to the Watson Institute, which is connected to Brown University, 241,000 people were killed in the Afghanistan war since 2001. 71,000 of those people that were killed have been civilians. The land of Afghanistan is filled with unexploded bombs to this day which kills and injures tens of thousands of Afghans, especially children, as they travel and go about their daily chores. The war has exasperated the effects of poverty, malnutrition, poor sanitation, and lack to health care in their country. The Afghan Ministry of Public Health reports that they believe two-thirds of Afghans suffer from mental health problems as a direct result to the war that's been going on there, or the war that went on there for 20 years. On top of that, 2,400 people in the U.S. military have died. No one knows with certainty how many people have been killed or were killed and wounded in Iraq since 2003, since the U.S. invasion. However, we know that at least between 184,000 and 207,000 civilians have died from direct war-related violence caused by our invasion. It's possible... The numbers are even higher, as it's been difficult to account for all the deaths there. 
Similarly, the systems of, that provide food and health care and drinking water have been greatly impacted. 4,400 people in the U.S. military have died in the war in Iraq. So Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. often gets, uh, he's very popularized for his statements in his speeches like, I have a dream. And some of the results that have taken place because of his peaceful protests and his amazing ability to speak prophetically. But often we pick and choose, don't we? Dr. Martin Luther King, when speaking on the Vietnam War, referred to America as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. Whew. He talked about the triplet of evil, racism, extreme materialism, and militarism. He spoke of the hypocrisy of telling young people in urban centers that violence will not solve their problems while condoning our government when it resorts to violence. Now, you could tell me that that's an exaggeration, that we're not the greatest purveyor of violence, and maybe that is so. That's not the point. But it is a point to understand how we are dependent upon the sword in order to so-called bring peace in the world. Out of and, around 200 countries in the world, only nine of them have nuclear weapons, according to Shane Claiborne on Red Letter Christians. 93% of the nuclear weapons in the world are owned by two countries. Guess which ones? The United States and Russia. We are the only country in the history of the world that has used them, and we use them twice in a week, killing hundreds of thousands of people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We now have, a have, have bombs that are 100 times more powerful than what we used in that war. And our arsenal is about 100,000 of those bombs. We have the greatest stockpile. We have the largest military budget in the history of the world by far. And I get what people would say, and I understand this argument, that there are times when we are trying to help other people or we're trying to be a beacon of freedom and democracy or our violence is used to prevent more violence in the world or, like I said before, these wars are justified because of what has been done to us, right? They did it first. And I just humbly, 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 humbly consider what Jesus said to Peter in the most justifiable violence in the history of the world. He said, those who live by the sword die by the sword. The truth can set us free. And maybe our country's exceptionalism is true in certain areas. But it's equally true that we are exceptional in our embrace of violence in the world. We still are one of the few countries in the world that embrace capital punishment. We're usually top five in the world in capital punishment. We are exceptional in our infatuation with guns. <laughs> we are 5% of the world's population in the United States, and we own nearly half the world's civilian-owned guns. That is incredible. There are, more, there are five times more gun dealers in the U.S. than McDonald's restaurants. <laughs> There's, a, there's like two in a block, so from here. We produce nine and a half million guns every year. We provide weapons for 100, we've provided weapons for 150 countries at different times around the world, depending on who we want to win. <laughs> we've been in two major wars the past 20 years, 
And at one point in the early 2000s, we were dropping 900 bombs a day. In 2016, under President Obama, we dropped 26,000 bombs in a year. Our military spending is not a Republican or Democrat issue. Obama raised Bush's military budget, Trump raised Obama's, and Biden has raised Trump's. In the United States, we've spent more on national defense, $778 billion than China, India, Russia, the United Kingdom, Saudi Arabia, Germany, France, Japan, South Korea, Italy, Australia, all combined. Our defense spending accounts for more than 10% of all federal spending and nearly half of our discretionary spending, meaning that the other 40% is non-discretionary. So we're using or more than that, and 50% of it is spent on protection. We could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. What are we saying as Christians when our first move is to support violence? Who are we claiming that we, that is our hope? I think it says that our hope and our protection and our faith is in our military might. I'm not saying this as a corporate America. I'm saying this as Christians and who we, who we support and what we support and what we think about. And it's not just wars. It's, it's all violence, right? And Jesus says, and so we must... <laughs> We must consider what Jesus says. Those who live by the sword, die by the sword. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Take the plank out of our own eyes before we denounce the violence in others. So maybe some of you have been already offended, and maybe others of you are saying, this is great. Um, but I want to share what Jesus' vision of the world is. What does the Bible have to say about what God's dream is for humanity? In Genesis 1-2, it says this, The earth was formless, it was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Essentially, Genesis 1 is, is poetic. And the idea it's supposed to give is that there was essentially chaos before God brought functionality for God brought order to the chaos. There was there's this imagery of disorder and that God brings the chaos into something beautiful, into a creation that is good. Leviticus 26, 4 through 6. Now this is the law. This is the law given to Moses. And this is what God desired for Israel and their reality to be. I will give you your rains in their season. And the land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall overtake the vintage, and the vintage shall overtake the sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full, and live securely in the land. And I will grant peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and no one shall make you afraid. I will remove dangerous animals from the land, and no sword shall go through your land. Ezekiel 34 it's another passage looking forward to the, uh, well, the current age, what they should long for, and I think it has some messianic pointing towards who the Messiah would be and what the world would be like. 
I will make them a covenant of shalom or peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing. Listen how similar this is to Leviticus. And I will send down the showers in their seasons and and they shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land. There shall be no more, there shall, shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them plantations of peace. Isaiah 11, another prophetic word. Says the boy, the wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. Ephesians 2, this is Paul speaking, what Jesus did for humanity. For he is our peace in his flesh, by, his cro- by the cross, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. So we could say confidently, there's many more verses like this that I could have brought about today, but we can say confidently that the central vision of world history in the Bible is that all of creation is one. Every creature in community with every other, living in harmony and security toward the joy and well-being of every other creature. In the community of faith in Israel, this vision is expressed in the affirmation that Abraham is the father of all Israel and every person is his child. Israel has a vision of all people drawn into community around the will of its God. In the New Testament, the church has a parallel vision of all persons being drawn under the lordship and fellowship of Jesus and therefore into a single community. As if those visions were not sweeping enough, the most staggering expression of the vision is that all persons are... um, are children of one single family, members of one single tribe, heirs to a single hope, and bearers of a single destiny, namely the care and management of God's good creation. The image that is one of the images and titles that's given to Jesus is the Prince of Peace. I don't think that this is supposed to be just something that's written on a Christmas card. <laughs> I think sometimes this is interpreted as to mean to give you a peace of mind in an anxiety-ridden world. And I think that's probably true. But I don't think that's entirely what was meant by Jesus saying that he's the prince of peace. I think it means something more. I think what it means is that Jesus is offering the world, when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, an alternative arrangement that could best be described as peace. Jesus is the Savior of the world in a real, wonderful, and urgent way. The Prince of Peace can lead humanity out of the madness of arranging our world around power, violence, and war. And I believe that Jesus and his peaceable kingdom are the hope of the world. But in order to cling to the God of peace, we must be rediscipled in the way of Jesus. This is a distinction that I often give people when I, I talk to them about. Uh, being a Christian. 
I used to use this a lot when I was in youth ministry because this is, it was helpful to help them frame it and it's helpful for me to this day. And I always say that you don't need to believe, you don't just need to believe in Jesus, right? Okay, that's important. Do you know what it means to believe in Jesus? I believe that Jesus was God. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He offers me eternal life in him. He offers me the Holy Spirit. All those good things. That makes you an Orthodox Christian in many ways. But the question that I think is important is, do you believe Jesus? Not just do you believe in Jesus, do you believe Jesus? I remember uh, like learning a lot about Jesus as a young kid and then eventually becoming a Christian and thinking Jesus lived a really compelling life. It was great for him. <laughs> uh, I love that he provided me forgiveness of my sins and an opportunity to live in heaven forever with him. But his ideas, you know, it's better to give than to receive. Do I really? Do you really believe that? I don't know. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. I mean, his ideas about prayer are pretty radical. Would you not think so? His ideas about money. Whew. I don't know, Jesus. Are, are you sure that's what you're saying, right? Do you want to rethink some of that stuff? What if people take advantage of you with your money? <laughs> that's the question I wanted to ask you. Is what, if, what if people... Put another way, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in what the Gospels report about Jesus. I believe that he died and rose. And without it, I think we have very little to cling to in our lives, but just to try to survive and do whatever makes us happy and gives us the greatest pleasure. But if we believe in Jesus, that means we also have to believe Jesus and we have to believe Jesus and his ideas. We have to um, believe what he actually said. I'm drawing a blank on, and I should have wrote it down, on the, the man that wrote in his book that Jesus is the smartest man that ever lived. <laughs> Seems logical, Right? I mean, that's kind of like obvious in some ways, but then you think about it, you're like, oh. Like, so what he said, actually he meant, and it's actually true. It's been really bad that we've divorced Jesus from uh, who he claims to be and what he claims to be all about. It's been a disaster for the church. 1,700 years has been a disaster. What happens is we begin believing in our ideas and we just come to make the, the, the temptation to make Jesus a, very, a version of ourselves. <laughs> I was reading in a commentary one time, they said, isn't it interesting that uh, the Jesus that we formed, if we like, drew a picture of him, he would look exactly like our own image. <laughs> and his point was, we just make God into our own image, don't we? So one of the things that's critical to not just believing in Jesus, but believing Jesus, is to believe in this peaceable kingdom, that there is another way. What happens if we don't? Brian Zahn puts it this way. The result is that we reduce Jesus to being a savior who guarantees our reservation in heaven while we're using him to endorse our own ideas about how to run the world. And because we can embrace our own ideas how to run the world, this is how the church in Germany could endorse Adolf Hitler. This is how the Russian Orthodox Church right now can endorse Vladimir Putin. 
And this is why American evangelicalism can endorse whoever gives them the greatest power. And some people will say, well, I know that Jesus speaks about peace, but we live in a nuclear age. Can't work in a nuclear age. But if Jesus' ideas about peace are not true now, they don't work now, and if they're not realistic now, then like, it's just like for this future? Now, I believe that the, like, the kingdom is here and it's coming, right? And ultimately, we won't see uh, you know, the, the, the new, like, this peaceable kingdom fully into the new heavens and the new earth. But this is the call of discipleship, right? Is to cling to God in the midst of violence in the world, in the midst of war in the world, in the midst of a tit for tat and the violence that goes round and round and round. We are called to break the cycle and to be peacemakers. We are called to live into that future reality and bring about renewal right here and right now. The gospel is not meant simply to be this private, private, otherworldly reality. Jesus' words are for the here and now, even if they will fully become apparent in the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't it interesting that the religious leaders of Jesus' day chose Barabbas over him? You ever thought about that? Why did they do that? <laughs> Barabbas, the reason that he was facing the cross and execution is because he was an insurrectionist. An insurrectionist means that he was trying to gather people to go fight Rome and, and take back the land for Israel, right? The Jewish people. Now, whether that was realistic or not, <laughs> they chose an incredibly troubled man over the Prince of Peace. And I think it shows that we're a little bit more comfortable <laughs> with people whose vision is aligned with the world than that of the God of the universe. So why am I saying this? I think that the war in the Ukraine has probably shook us all, has it not? It has shook me because it is astounding to me how evil our world is. And I keep asking myself, what do I cling to in the midst of this? Well, we cling to Jesus, our Prince of Peace, who has ushered in a new world order. Jesus, the hope of the world, or we depend on the old systems and the old ways. And we always have an excuse. Well, it's different now. But if you look at history, it's just the same thing. Over and over and over and over. We'll reject the world's way of violence as solving violence and justify our own nation's reliance on violence to save the world. Well, we grow in our imagination of how we might turn our own city's guns into plowshares. Well, we stand up against violence, against people and all of its forms. So the good news of Jesus, death and resurrection, is that it's both personal and cosmic. It's not just for you, it's for the whole world. It is why the vision of Missio Dei Chicago isn't only for people to be saved, though that is an incredible thing, but to join God as saved people in the renewal of all things. 
This includes individuals, systems, structures, loves, longings, so that God's rule and God's reign is here, is at hand. That's why when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Peace comes on earth as it is in heaven. So will we cling to the God of peace? Will we cling to the Prince of Peace when everyone around us tells us that we have to follow the systems of the world? So how does this practically impact us? I just wrote this down over here. So this is, I, I realized that I was all up here. Okay, and I need just to say a couple things really quick about what it means in our everyday lives. Because probably none of us have the power to change uh, wars <laughs> and, and things like that at this point. But one thing that we can do is this, is we can practice in our own lives when we have enemies and we have people that have wronged us. Will we assume the burden of forgiveness? Will we be reconciled? In order for someone, someone or something to be reconciled, someone has to bear the weight of forgiveness. It's, it's, it's not free. Even in my own kids' lives when they're, <laughs> they're fighting, in order for that fight to stop, someone has to stop fighting. Someone has to say, I'm going to let this go. Someone says, I'm going to forgive, even though this other person isn't going to forgive me. Amen. It's that simple with children, and it's simple, that simple with us. So if we want to be people of peace, will we forgive? Will we reconcile? Will we practice peace even when other people are acting violently towards us? Or will we stop? Will we not retaliate when someone else has wronged us? 